In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask you for pardon of my sins and grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Mother Immaculate, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. In a chapter of The Way entitled Your Sanctity, Saint Josemaria has a very provoking little point which I just want to read to you. Remember, he says, that even if your virtues seem saintly, they are worth nothing if they are not united to the ordinary Christian virtues. That would be like adorning yourself with splendid jewels over your underclothes, a bit like the emperor's new clothes. So I suppose what he is referring to is the danger that we might be very conscious of the supernatural, theological virtues, faith, hope, charity, piety, etc., and lose sight of the ordinary life and the virtues that are needed to operate there, the natural virtues, as we might, might call them. And perhaps to get a, a view of this, get it into perspective, we could sort of zoom out a little bit and think of how the early Christians were trying to get a handle for themselves and for their contemporaries to whom they wished to explain their faith on who Jesus exactly was or is. Is he God? Is he man? Is he both? A mixture of the two. These were the kind of issues which the early church tried to uh, clarify. And in the early councils of the church, there were, uh, there was a lot of reference to this kind of thing. I suppose the first influential heresy comes along these lines the Arians, who put, put, it to us, put it to the church that, that Christ, that Jesus, is, is a very good and holy man, um, a great prophet, a great priest, holy man, saint, very close to God, very like God, in fact, was the words that they, that they chose. And it seemed to be a fairly kind of reasonable way of, uh, of explaining the faith that we had in Christ. And the emperor, was who had turned Christianity into the religion of the empire, was quite pleased with it because it seemed very natural and easy to understand and easy to explain to people and get them on board with it. But... The church wasn't particularly happy with this. It just didn't seem right. And there was a council held in Nicaea in 
early fourth century with saints like Saint Athanasius and others at the time, great theologians, great fathers of the church, trying to work out how do we put it? How do we say what Jesus is? Until with a lot of blood, literally, because there were martyrs uh, for the sake of this teaching, sweat and tears and time and effort and uh, head scratching, eventually they came up with the phrase which we stand to recite every single Sunday. One in substance with the Father. Jesus is truly God, truly the Son of God, one in substance. Not like the Father, but one in substance with him. So, so this was, uh, if you like, a, a great victory, a great triumph for the, for the church to be able to articulate this and to say that Jesus truly is God. This um, Jesus who walked the earth, who uh, lived with the apostles, who died on the cross and rose again, he is truly God. But life goes on and there is always a balance to be found in the church's teaching and it can be lost. And so in subsequent years, having made so clear the truth of Jesus' divinity, the church found herself faced with another heresy. Uh, the heresy of thinking that, yes, Jesus is God. And his divinity is so, if you like, so all-embracing and so overwhelming that his humanity, his human side, his being man, was somewhat overlooked. Indeed, sometimes even denied that he was simply, that he was God and that, that his human side, if you like, was simply an appearance. A little bit like perhaps an angel might appear to a human being clothed with some kind of human appearance so as to be well, visible and uh, to be experienced by the, the human person, like Our Lady or Zachary or whoever it might be in the New Testament. And that Jesus had simply clothed himself with a human uh, form in order to be able to live with us and uh, be experienced by us. And this too caused quite a, a little bit of controversy in the church because this didn't seem to be right. Certainly, yes, Jesus is God, but he's also man, surely. And eventually this too was thrashed out in councils until the phrase which we're so familiar with perhaps from the benediction uh, rite, the divine praises, blessed be Jesus Christ, true God and true man. A phrase which is, comes from the famous Athanasian uh, creed, not written actually by Saint Athanasius, but somehow referring to him and in tribute to him. It's actually from a later period. True God and true man. Jesus is God but he's also man. And his divinity, his, his, his divine side, doesn't take away from his human side. Bishop Barron often speaks about this in his um, uh, podcast and so on, that in the ancient myths, the, the Greek gods and goddesses and so on, when they come down to earth, it's, it just totally overwhelms the human whatever human is unfortunate enough to, to get in their way, they, they just 
steamroll uh, him or her and perhaps abuse and treat them badly, etc. Because, well, gods are able to do that kind of thing, even if they're gods with a small g. Um, whereas when God truly becomes man, truly is incarnated, he doesn't in any way throw aside the human or overwhelm it. In Jesus, his humanity is as real and as true as his divinity. He is like us, as St. Paul puts it, or the letter of the Hebrews puts it, he's like us in all things but sin. And sin is not human anyway. Sin is, I suppose, a falling away from our humanity in one way or in another. And, but in every other way, in every other sense of what it is to be human, Jesus is truly like us. And um, the fathers of the church used to say that what is not assumed is not redeemed. In other words, he takes to himself, makes his own, everything that is human. He recapitulates, for instance, all of human history from Adam right down to the last human being. Jesus takes that, all of that history, the joys, the sorrows, the ups, the downs, the achievements, the difficulties, everything except sin, everything that is human, Jesus makes it his own and unites himself with it and with, with us. He assumes everything about, the, about humanity into his own life and into his own um, being. So he truly is, he really is true God and true man. They thought of the redemption as a little bit like the good shepherd, you know, placing the, the lost sheep whom he has found it was straying and had got lost the shepherd carefully seeks that sheep out places it on his shoulders and brings it back to the flock brings us back to his father restores our happiness and our completeness by becoming one of us God becomes man so that man can become God. So that, in a way, is the background to the importance of the human virtues. That is the background to how human life, the word is made flesh and dwelt amongst us, tells us how important human life is. Our human nature is not something that's evil or totally destroyed by original sin, as some forms of Protestantism would like to suggest. Our human nature is good, flawed, perhaps, well, without a perhaps, definitely flawed, but still open to what is good and to what is true, still open to seeking God and being sought by him. Our human nature is not a dead loss in any way. And Jesus, by becoming flesh, by truly becoming man, if you like, he's passing a vote of confidence in us, in our humanity, in our 
potentiality and what we can become. Hence the importance of living according to this, living according to the truth and the potential of our human nature, according to the natural sort of virtues, as well as the supernatural ones, the faith, hope and charity kind of virtues. Also, the everyday, as St. Maria puts it, the ordinary Christian virtues and human, not just Christian, but even human, natural virtues, just part of what it is to be a human being, to flourish as a human being. That too is part of our Christian vocation. It's not, an, it's not something that we can just say, oh, it doesn't really matter. It really does matter because Christ lived in that way. He lived a fully human life. And he wants us to as well. I've just been reading a book, a couple of books actually, about uh, a couple of, uh, some events that happened in Oxford in the 1940s and 50s. Four philosophers who um, became quite well known and uh, started off a whole new movement there in, in those years, in those decades. And they had one thing in common. Well, and that was that they were all women. Uh, Elizabeth Anscombe, uh, Iris Murdoch, born in Dublin, um, Philippa Foote and Mary Midgley. They arrived to, to uh, Oxford in the 40s when Oxford ethics was pretty barren and, and the basic agreed um, accepted wisdom at the time was that good and evil are not really objective. They are simply expressions of how you feel about things. So when I say something is bad, all I mean really is that I don't like it. It doesn't suit me or it makes me feel bad. And these four um, philosophers just could not accept this. They arrived to philosophy, they arrived, arrived to Oxford after the Second World War with their minds full of all that was emerging of the atrocities, the horrors of those six years. And they could not accept that the Holocaust and the other war crimes that they were discovering. They could not accept that these things were, well, they were, it's up to you, what, whatever you thought about them. Perhaps the people who um, perpetrated them, perhaps they thought it was the right thing to do. No way. They just could not accept this. And they knew there was objective moral evil and objective moral good as well. And so little by little they began to dig into this. And Elizabeth Anscombe, who was a Catholic, suggested to them that one way of uh, being able to thematize and be able to kind of show this truth of the objectivity, the reality of values of good and evil in particular, was to look at St. Thomas Aquinas and his treatise on the virtues in his famous uh, Summa Theologica. And so they began to work their way through. Uh, St. Thomas in the Summa Theologica, he, it's very, in some ways it's 
quite long, but in other ways it's very straightforward when it comes to ethics. He simply has the cardinal virtues, prudence, justice, temperance and fortitude, which kind of cover all of what it is to be human in, in different senses. You know, temperance to one's appetites, one's loves, fortitude when one has to, when one is up against a difficulty and you have to deal with that, uh, one's fears or whatever it may, challenges that, that come along, justice in relation with other people, and then prudence overall to just to see how am I going to be able to achieve the good. And St. Thomas too kind of draws all the different virtues, of which there are many, uh, a great many, out of those four cardinal or hinge uh, virtues. So they, they, they were quite impressed by this. Obviously, it's a fantastic uh, theory, more than a theory, it really reflects reality. But also, it showed them that you find good and evil in everyday life, in the small and not so small adventures of, of just being a human being every day. And the small virtues are vices are pretty important because they do help you to flourish or otherwise as a human being. They gave a couple of examples of ones that sort of struck them. Uh, talkativeness. If you're too talkative, they said, then I presume this comes from Aquinas uh, originally, but they, they, they struck, it struck them that if you're too talkative, well then you can't reflect. You, you can't be the kind of rational animal that, that we all are. Um, by the way, the title of one of the books uh, written by Claire McCool about them is called Metaphysical Animals. Um, but we are, whatever about that, we are rational animals. So we need to be able to reflect. And so if we're talking all the time, well, we, we're not reflecting as much as we might. Um, obviously, there's a time for talking and a time for reflecting. But they were, they were just struck by how objective it was that these things, these small things actually are important. Rudeness was another one. That, uh, that they discussed quite, quite a lot, which Aquinas brings up. Because clearly, as human beings, we're meant to live together with one another. We're meant to be able to treat one another correctly and well and trust one another. So rudeness, it's a problem. It's not just a, a small um, blip. It's, it's a bit more serious than that. And obviously, it's not a, a mortal sin, as it were. Uh, to be rude sometimes because we all fall into saying the wrong thing and um, putting our foot in it. But rudeness does kind of divide and we are social, so we're meant to be kind of together. Um, so little by little, through these smaller virtues, they built up a picture of how the natural virtues enable you to become the kind of person, the kind of human being that well, we're, we're created for. And one of them, uh, Philippa Foote, wrote a book called Natural Goodness. In other words, that our nature gives us a kind of a, a steer on what it is to be good. Now, obviously, this isn't going to get you to heaven. This is not the same thing as holiness. Philippa Foote, for instance, was an atheist. Um, but still, it was a good basis for building uh, the, a life of grace and the life of holiness on. Uh, the, the famous medieval motto, grace perfects nature. It doesn't destroy it. 
Um, we're not meant to just kind of get to heaven by prayer and grace. We're also meant to, to do good works, meant to kind of flourish as human beings, and grace will actually enhance our nature if we, uh, if we allow it to. Just as we were saying how Jesus is true God and true man. So um, I suppose it's worth our thinking about that a little bit. Well, how about my um, ability to practice the ordinary virtues? Um, and it usually comes down to small things. If I, you know, if I have a bit of a temper, it's a potential strength because it means perhaps that I have got, you know, good convictions, clear convictions about what I believe in. But I've just allowed it to skew me a bit. And so, you know, I might go off on a rant unnecessarily. And instead of helping people to, to, to understand what I'm saying, I just put them off. Uh, it's a small thing, but it's a, obviously a way of one can flourish a bit more by controlling that uh, temper. Um, I remember once, I suppose it has to do with the virtue of temperance, but I remember once seeing um, a brand for some garden tools which was true temper. The idea being that these, the steel was both um, was tempered, it was strong, but it was also flexible. If it was too strong and not flexible, you couldn't really dig with it very much. Whereas if it wasn't, if it was totally flexible, you couldn't dig, dig with it either. And it's a bit the same with our um, personalities. We need to be strong, but at the same time, flexible in order to be able to to reach people and understand things and, uh, and to put them across. And so on and so forth. So many other ways. You know, being a workaholic, uh, it's obviously a strength, but it's kind of gone a bit too far. No wonder Aristotle always talk about, talked about the golden mean when he was talking about virtues. You know, that on the one hand you have a vice, laziness, on the other hand, you have a vice, which is sort of workaholism. I'm sure he didn't use that word, but still, you know, something along those lines where work becomes just one's very life, which isn't right. Um, there are more important things. And um, so I suppose it's, you know, the, we all can probably find aspects of our personalities where we perhaps veer a little bit towards one in one direction or another. And, and we could do with a tiny bit of... Uh, just keeping it a bit more in bounds. All of this, I suppose, just comes from that phrase, St. John's, the word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us. It, um, it just it comes out, it has that implication that living uh, the ordinary virtues of every day kind of links you to Christ. St. Maria has a famous homily uh, which he spoke at a, a Mass in 1967 uh, where he really wanted to explain the spirit of Opus Dei. It's in his book uh, Conversations with Monsignor um, Escriva and uh, mostly made up of interviews but at the end this, this uh, homily is included and it has a strange kind of title passionately loving the and you might be expecting you know as a saint as a founder that he was saying passionately loving God or passionately loving holiness 
But in fact, no, it's passionately loving the world. And I think that's really says a lot about his spirit, that it's in and through the things of every day, our work, the challenges, the problems we solve, or do our best to solve, that that is where we will actually find God. In that homily, he talks about a kind of Christian materialism. Not the kind of materialism that's blind to the spirit, he explained, but still, a materialism, seeing the importance of matter, of everyday matters, of everyday things, because they are the place where we can, if we wish, find God, because there he awaits us. He's hoping, as it were, that we will find him in those things. But he has already found us there. And that's probably the first thing to think of. He has placed us in this job or in this situation, or this family, in this setting where we can actually make the faith uh, ring. I remember hearing an interview once with the director of a uh, symphony orchestra which had come to Dublin actually to play in the National Concert Hall. And they were playing a fairly, some fairly familiar pieces, but they were rehearsing quite a lot. And the interviewer asked the conductor, why, why have you been rehearsing so much if it's you know, such familiar pieces that you know you've played so very often before? And he just explained that to him that it was because they needed to sense, to, to hear how it sounded in the, in the National Concert Hall, which was new to them, how the acoustics, how it, just how it sounded there. And I suppose we could also think, well, how does my faith and my charity and my sort of Christian vocation, how does it sound in the, the concert hall of my everyday life? Uh, does it ring there? I don't mean ring in a kind of showy sort of way, but does it actually ring true? And uh, is it helpful for people? Because that's what it can be. Finally, St. Maria has a, uh, in his book, Furrow, he finishes each chapter off with a short point. It's a book based on points, as you probably know. Uh, and he finishes each chapter off with a relevant point about Mary, about Our Lady. And in the chapter on personality, which is pretty kind of relevant to what we've been talking about here, um, he finishes it off with this point, which he comments upon, so I'll, I'll just read it to you. Uh, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman adorned with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars about her head. So that's the quotation which we read on the Feast of the Assumption from the Book of Revelation about Our Lady in heaven, the Ark of the Covenant. And his commentary is, from this, you and I and everyone may be sure that nothing perfects our personality so much as responding to grace. Try to imitate the Virgin Mary and you will be a complete man or woman. So let's finish by asking Our Lady, who lived a very ordinary life, but a life full of small virtues, the wedding feast of Cana, she spots the problem. 
Then there's a, a miracle, obviously, which is beyond supernatural. But the first point was that she noticed like a good um, socially aware kind of person. Oh, we have a problem here. Or she notices she, the angel tells her that her cousin is expecting a child. And without being told what to do, she just heads off to help Elizabeth uh, during her pregnancy. And then when Jesus is lost in the temple, she is so, so upset and faces him. I mean, how could you do this to us? As anyone would say, any parent would say in a situation like that, how could you treat us this way? She didn't understand the answer then, but she did what a normal human being would do. She sanctified the ordinary, the problem, that was a huge problem, but she sanctified it. I'm sure she prayed to find him and that he would be okay and worried, sick. Eventually she, she, got, she got to find him. So she can help us to find God too in the ordinary things of our lives so that they too can help us to turn to God and give him glory. I give you thanks, my God, for the good resolutions, affections and inspirations which you have communicated to me in this meditation. I ask you for help to put them into effect. My Mother Immaculate, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.